0: This is Vanderbilt Business. I'm Kara Shear, and a few weeks ago I sat down with Bart Adesh, the representative of the North American Office for the Asian Development Bank. We talked about the growth of Asia-Pacific economies, challenges that the region is facing, how an MBA can prepare business leaders to work in a global economy, and more. Hi everyone, this is Kara Shear, and I'm here today with Bart Adesh of the Asian Development Bank. So, Bart, can you tell us what brought you to campus today?
1: Hi, Kara. Great to be here and happy to be a part of the, the podcast. Uh, I came to Nashville and more specifically to, to the Owen School here at Vanderbilt because I wanted to engage with some of the students about uh, opportunities uh, working at the Asian Development Bank and also to share some of our insights into economic uh, developments and prospects for the Asia-Pacific
0: region. Excellent. We're so glad to have you here today. So can you talk a little bit more about yourself and your work history and then what you do at ADB?
1: Sure, I grew up in North America. I started in Saskatchewan where I was born, but um, much of my youth was actually spent in Arizona. So I'm a dual Canadian US national. I studied political science for my bachelor's degree. That was at Georgetown and my graduate studies were in public policy at the University of Michigan. I ended up working uh, after grad school at the U.S. Department's International Trade Administration, and that really launched me, I think, uh, into an international career, and I was segued coming from a graduate school that uh, built up very good links with the federal government, and in my time at ITA, that part of the U.S. Commerce Department, uh, allowed me to to spread my wings a bit, and I ended up from there traveling abroad and working abroad uh, for pretty much the next quarter of a century, I'd only planned to go for three years, but uh, I so enjoyed the stimulation of working in different countries and learning new languages. I went uh, to to Europe and, and to Asia um, and was in a few different countries. My interest in Asia really began to emerge in shortly after 2000. So the world was starting to pay more attention to Asia, um, and we saw, uh, in many ways, the world was starting to tilt to Asia uh, as a increasingly influential part of the world in in economics and trade, and in military security, all aspects of life, Uh, Asia was looming larger and when the opportunity came to go work for the Asian Development Bank, I jumped at it and started there in 2001.
0: Excellent. So for listeners who don't know, can you talk a little bit more about what the Asian Development Bank is and what it does?
1: Sure. The Asian Development Bank is what you call a multilateral development bank. It's also an international organization. It's owned by 67 countries and territories, about 70% of these are in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, but others are outside the region, uh, in particular in Europe, uh, but also North America, Canada, and the U.S. Uh, ADB was sent up a little more than half a century ago to provide financing for development in poor Asian countries. So It started out uh, financing mostly physical infrastructure, think of irrigation and dams and bridges and the like, Uh, and over time grew to become a comprehensive development bank, also working in softer areas like uh, governance, environment, gender equality, health, education, and social protection. But still, most of our business is infrastructure. Specifically how we work is we, we make loans and provide grants and technical assistance to governments of developing countries, to build projects like sanitation facilities, like roads, like power transmission uh, facilities and solar plants. We increasingly are are doing work to help countries mitigate against the impacts of climate change and to adapt to climate change. Uh, The United States and Canada together own 21 percent, so about one-fifth of the bank Because of that, we have an office here in North America where I work in Washington, D.C., serving as a liaison to the U.S. and Canadian markets, dealing first and foremost with the governments, which are shareholders, but also interacting with um, important uh, graduate programs like here at Owen.
0: You were hinging at this just now, but Asia is obviously a huge contributor to the global economy. It accounts for one-third of GDP and more than half the world's economic growth. So looking forward, what new roles do you see Asian countries playing on the international stage as this growth continues?
1: Well, uh, I think it's clear that Asian countries and representatives of Asian countries are taking on more and more leadership positions, for example, in international organizations. Look at the the last uh, Secretary General of the United Nations uh, just as an example, the head of the World Bank an American citizen has roots in Korea. You have in terms of trade agreements and international negotiations on just about any topic Asian countries are featuring prominently. And this is only to be expected. Uh, Asia's rise uh, becoming more influential in the global economy. They warrant a a greater place in decision making regarding how that economy is regulated and um, how trade and investment take place. Uh, and so in the years ahead I only expect that this will increase. It's worth reflecting that uh, while this is a bit of a change for everybody involved and there's some bumps along the road as as relationships change among countries and, and who has more influence at any particular time, centuries ago China had the largest chunk of the global economy and was the world power. So the fact we're coming back to a situation where not only China but other important Asian countries in terms of population, uh, size of economy uh, and other sources of influence are playing a bigger role. That's just that's just natural. But at the same time, it brings brings about change that can make some people nervous.
0: Absolutely. So, sort of looking at the flip side of this, I know you were talking about this a little bit when you discussed the work of ADB but despite these great economic gains made in the region, many people in Asia and the Pacific still face absolute poverty. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that as well as other challenges that the region is facing.
1: Sure, what we've seen in the Asia Pacific region in the last two, three decades has been the most remarkable economic, social, cultural, technological transformation in the history of humankind. We've seen uh, the share of the population in Asia, living in extreme poverty, plummet. We've seen um, considerable improvement in a number of social indicators. Uh, but at the same time, it's the, the job is not done. The development continues. And in some Asian countries, there uh, still um, are, are major uh, areas of deprivation. Uh, just to put some numbers around it, there are some 300 million people in Asia and the Pacific living on less than $1.90 a day. That's more than on any other continent in the world. You have similar numbers without access to clean water or to electricity and you have an astounding 1.5 billion Asians who don't have access to to sanitation. So there's clearly work to be done and that's even before you get to aspects like communications and transportation where in many countries it's very difficult to get around. This kind of explains why ADB has a continuing role to play in helping countries uh, move forward in their development paths to continue rising out of the low income and lower middle incomes uh, standing uh, to, to higher ones, and also to deal with uh, cross border and global issues. So uh, come back to, to climate change being a major challenge, uh, the risk of uh, health pandemics, pollution. Um, there are a number of issues that uh, we are working with countries and helping to convene meetings with them together to jointly collaborate on addressing these challenges.
0: So turning now to look at the relationship between the United States and Asia, obviously the U.S. withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership in January 2017. It was a very big news item. In the time since that happened, how has it already impacted the U.S.'s presence in the Asia-Pacific region? And then what additional changes do you anticipate moving forward?
1: There's a sense uh, among many who are watching developments uh, between uh, the U.S., and Asia, that the withdrawal, not only from the TPP, but uh, from, say, more active engagement in different fora in Asia by the U.S. is is leading to Asian countries filling the void that's created by that, and what you see also uh, in, in a related manner is Asian countries pursuing regional integration. So the TPP did not die because the U.S. decided not to continue to be involved. It rather was uh, reshaped into the comprehensive uh, and progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership with 11 countries, seven of which are in the Asia-Pacific region, and that's been uh, negotiated. And now when uh, half of the countries that have signed on ratified it will go into effect. You also have the negotiation amongst 16 Asian countries of an even larger agreement called the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, and when that is approved, that will be the largest trade agreement in terms of uh, the countries involved, population uh, economies, et cetera, in, in the world. Uh, now, that's they're having some challenges because uh, you're dealing with countries as diverse in terms of economic development as, as India and uh, Australia and Japan and uh, Cambodia, but the countries are working together with an aim of moving forward. So this comes back to the role of the U.S. The U.S. is not involved in the negotiations of this new regional a comprehensive economic partnership, it pulled out of the TPP, uh, but Asia, um, not just in the last year, uh, I hasten to add this, this movement to cooperating more with each other, to trading more with each other, to reducing barriers and building links that, that came before 2018 and 2017, has been going on the last several years, and you see more trade and investment and movement of people and workers among countries of Asia. and as far as looking forward, one can anticipate there will be continued integration of this region, and not only with the, the great influence of China as the largest country by population and, and its huge economy, but also other uh, current or rising economic powers, including Japan, including Korea, including Indonesia, Pakistan, uh, there are a number of uh, influential countries that will be playing into this new uh, and more integrated Asian uh, bloc.
0: Absolutely. So obviously, as you were just discussing, these countries are already major global players. That's only going to continue to increase. So why, in your opinion, is it so important for business leaders, especially those from the West, to learn how to do business in Asia?
1: Well, it's a very different world than when these students at Owen today were were born. Asia is much more prominent on the map, and indeed there are more Asian students uh, among the Owen student body, um, and that's that's completely normal and reflects uh, the changing complexity of, of of the world and of higher education. Uh, to understand economics, to to understand business, you cannot do it in a vacuum or in the narrow focus of say just the state of Tennessee or in the United States or even in, in North America. The, the world is uh, is so intertwined, and Asia is an increasingly big part of it. Mm-hmm. Something like ten percent. Trade represents about 10% of the GDP of the state of Tennessee. Over 7,000 firms in Tennessee are exporting, and about a quarter of the exports of Tennessee are going to Asia, and one can expect um, that that may well increase, given that these economies are becoming richer and you have middle classes that will want to import quality products from the United States. So in short, one can't uh, ignore Asia uh, or be indifferent to it if they're interested in uh, a career in Finance and business, uh, or uh, other related careers uh, that are natural for an MBA coming out of uh, this university.
0: Definitely. So, speaking with MBAs, I know you've been meeting with Vanderbilt business students all day. So, I'm wondering if you have any insights into how getting an MBA can help prepare people to work in such a global economy.
1: Well, it's it's a great degree to have. In my own institution, the Asian Development Bank, we have about 3,100 staff and. The MBA is the most common degree or certainly among the most common. It's it's flexible, allowing one to have a focus uh, in a particular region or in a particular aspect of, say, business or finance. Right now, Owen uh, as one of the the leading business schools in in North America uh, and with a student body that is diverse, with expertise in the faculty on international business. It's a great place to serve as a springboard into a global market even if it's within the U.S. but uh, in companies that inevitably are are tied to to the global market.
0: Well thank you so much for your time today Bart. We're really glad you could make it out to Nashville.
1: Kara, it's been a pleasure and I really enjoyed interacting with, learning from, and being impressed by, frankly, the very high quality uh, graduate students you've got here.
0: Yeah, well we're glad to hear that. and Thank you again. Thanks to Bart again for his time, and thank you for listening. You can find more stories and information about Owen's Graduate School of Management by visiting our website, business.vanderbilt.edu, or by following at Vanderbilt Owen on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Music is provided by Mike Foster, and I'm Kara Shearer.